So let's just drill a, a bit more um, into uh, uh, learning about your mother and, and maybe a bit about uh, that chapter in your book called How Green Was Her Valley. Right, well, uh, that chapter comes at the, uh, the end of my, uh, my early, uh, uh, following my father's death when I was nine years old. And so uh, the, uh, uh, in the chapter, in the previous chapter, I'd assessed the relationship of my mother and father as being uh, mutually respectful and uh, uh, both of them independent people and they disagreed, but they didn't do it in front of their children. And, uh, the, uh, uh, after my father died, my mother... Uh, uh, proved a capable parent. Uh, as far as I was concerned, I, I think, to be truthful, I think uh, we we got along financially as well as we did before he died. Uh, my mother started teaching school, but the school was only across the street from where we lived, and I went to the same school. And I and my brother, so we didn't have a sense of removal from our from our mother. Uh, what I'm saying is that she's a, she was a sufficient parent to us. Uh, and I admired her in retrospect intensely for that, her sturdiness and, uh, and uh, carrying on. And she did it very independently. She wanted to make her own living and did. The, uh, but uh, the, uh, she, uh, in the summer when my mother uh, when uh, we boys were in bed, uh, my mother would leave the doors open between uh, the bedroom and, and the kitchen where she was working. And uh, in the winter, of course, it being cold, they'd be closed. But uh, uh, you could hear my mother uh, s saying, uh, talking to herself. She always talked to herself when she was working in the kitchen alone. And I assume it was, had something to do with uh, the fact she lacked adult company, which my father uh, had uh, plenty of. He had a lot of, uh, he had a number of very intelligent friends and so on in town. And, but my mother, I think, had very little conversation with her peers. So maybe she, that's why she talked to herself. I don't know. But, she, but her conversations with herself were quite animated and uh, you could tell that she was talking to somebody uh, with an intonation, just as a person would in a real conversation. But uh, I'd, I'd sometimes listen a little as I drifted off to sleep, hear phrases. But I became aware that of a phrase in her uh, these discussions: uh, "How green was my valley?" And she repeated it often enough that I fixed on it and wondered what she meant, because the word valley to me had only one meaning. Our house stood on a little hill, and then the lot fell away into a little into a little uh, gully, or valley we called it, the valley, Go to, uh, where the wood pile and so on were, down in the valley. Well, that's all the word valley meant to me. Uh, it was only as an adult, uh, as I was traveling in Europe, in fact, I was in Sweden and in an English bookstore, picked up a copy of a novel called How Green Was My Valley. 
that I realized that that uh, this had some reference to to, to uh, what that phrase my mother had used, which I still remembered. It's the book about the coal mines uh, in in uh, Wales. Yeah. Okay. Correct. And uh, uh, the the uh, I read the book at that point, and later. Uh, some years later, realized that a, v- a video, a VCR, had been made on it, uh, and I determined to get it and look at it. But I put it off because I was I associated it. I knew that that phrase had to be uh, from uh, from my mother. I well, in fact, uh, going back, I did. I finally, as an adult, asked her what that phrase meant, and she explained to me. Uh, my father. Uh, died of uh, of cancer in 1943, and th- it was diagnosed in 1941. And he and my mother went to to Phoenix for the operation the day after Christmas, and were there six weeks. It was a very depressing period of my life. I can remember still some of the episodes of depression about it, but the. Uh, while she was there, uh, the the, the uh, doctors removed a tumor from my father and looked into his abdomen and saw that he was it had metastasized uh, and he was fated to die. Uh, he was told that, as was the custom then, that the operation had been successful and he would be free of cancer. He was okay. But my mother, the doctor told her, the doctors told her in private, uh, he has a year to two years to live and he will die of lung cancer. It it will transfer to his lungs, uh, which is exactly what happened. But for a, this is actually, incidentally, this is the way the doctors used to do it when I was a boy. Uh, they don't now, but at any rate, the a year and a half after the operation, my father uh, got feeling so bad and had so much pain in his lungs that uh, he and my mother uh, drove. Uh, went to see a doctor. Somebody drove them to McNary where there was a, the only doctor anywhere around up at the, uh, a lumber mill town, a sawmill town in McNary. And on the way they uh, passed through Lakeside and my father l- lamented Lakeside being where he had had his ranch with Amanda not living there. And uh, the, uh, 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 But at any rate, uh, my father uh, the doctor at McNary told my father, "You have uh, you have lung cancer, and it's inoperable, and uh, you're going to die." And he went home, uh, turned blue in the face, went home, and he died in five days. Uh, the uh, the doctor, the local doctor, uh, not really a certified M.D., but he was a good a good uh, osteopath. He uh, he could have tapped my father's lungs and preserved him another three four weeks, 
drain the water off. But my, he and my mother made the decision together to not do that. And so my father died quite quickly. And the, the, uh, my mother, uh, oh, I, I'm forgetting myself. While they were at the, having the operation, while he was recovering from the operation in Phoenix in 1941, was now a 19, it evolved into 1942. Uh, the uh, uh, some some friends that my mother was staying with took her to this movie, How Green Was My Valley, and it was just current. It was just out, 1941, 42, and in it a uh, the son of a uh, uh, the youngest son of a happy Welch mining family, uh, this son observes as the family slowly disintegrates, children growing up and moving away, and finally in the end the, uh, the father is, uh, of the family is killed in a mining accident. Uh, but the uh, the narrator, no longer a child, now an adult, says, uh, men like my father never die. They, uh, they will always be there in memory. Uh, and then the novel ends with the phrase, how green was my valley. And once I knew that uh, as an, uh, an adult, uh, and I knew that's where that phrase came from in my mother's soliloquies with herself, then I realized that she was transferring the, that uh, novelist uh, movie maker's uh, interpretation of that Welch family as, I mean, the, 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 the life of the family together as being uh, very happy and fulfilling. How green was my valley? And I knew that's what my mother was applying to her period. Well, I'd like to go to another topic, please. Sure. Um, Tell us about your college years and, um, wh well, what led you to your mission and talk about your mission. The, uh, well, the primary thing I suppose in my college years is that uh, my exposure to the ideas of, of intellectual people all over the world uh, my freshman English reader, uh, for example, had uh, uh, Bertrand Russell's A Free Man's Worship in it. Well, here I am, an 18-year-old, reading that, and it appealed to me, which frightened me. Uh, Bertrand Russell's an atheist, and uh, that was a part of my... Uh, uh, I was aware that I was attracted to disbelief. And this is at BYU, right? At BYU. You're reading Bertrand Russell. Well, it's in a, 
the class. Uh, an English reader. Hmm. Yeah, uh, there's 1951, not 2001. But uh, the the uh, by the end of that three-year period, my struggles against disbelief uh, became stronger and 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 my anxiety became very intense. And in fact, uh, my last, the, the spring quarter of my third year, I uh, had a, a, a period of intense doubt and, and strong anxiety. Anxiety was attached to doubt for me. Well, one night I, uh, it was still my, I was still maintaining my custom of praying. Uh, at, at one point I, th I th thought, well, I, I don't believe anymore. But that's not so bad. I don't need to be anxious about it. Uh, it doesn't make my life any longer or shorter, whether there is the eternal life or not. But at that, that point I, I was admitting I didn't believe in eternal life. And as I knelt down to pray that night, as was my custom, I thought uh, on the theory, well, it doesn't hurt to pray to express my reverence to the universe, just like Benjamin Frank, deists Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson did. Uh, when I got to the ending, the Mormon ending, in the name of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden I thought, you know, it doesn't make sense to end my prayers with a in the name of Jesus, but then, like that, the scripture went through my mind like a flash. Uh, he who believes is saved, and he who doesn't is damned already. I can't remember the precise wording of that scripture, but like a jolt, this overwhelming panic struck me, uh, anxiety, and I mean overwhelming. It was an impulse to run, and run... I had no idea where to, but to run. Well, that's insane. I recognized it immediately as insane, but it did. did you run or did you not run? No, I did not. Okay, okay. But, it. but it seemed to me I was investing an enormous emotional energy in not running. Mm -hmm. That my ability to, uh, well, I was therefore at that point introduced to uh, an intense anxiety that I would frequently suffer many years and for long periods. Uh, it didn't last too long in that particular time. It lasted uh, maybe 10 days. Long enough, though, for me to be aware that it wasn't a pleasant experience. And for 10 days, you're feeling what? R ready to run. For 10 days? 10 days. Uh, Just physically run? not Physically run. Just bolt and get out of here. Where to? I had no, I had no idea where to. And uh, I could, I, mercifully, I could sleep at night. But when I woke, it was right back. And so I went about doing my job, for my little part-time job, going to my classes, trying to study, just because it's the alternative. There was no alternative, and, but I was ex extremely uncomfortable. Well, that bout didn't last too long. Uh, that was in uh, May. In, uh, in, toward the end of the summer, when I'd gone home to Snowflake, 
my bishop asked me to go on a mission. I thought it over and I decided I'd go. Uh, I did go, but uh, the almost immediately after being out on my mission, that uh, an experience caused that intense anxiety to return. Uh, but it was all it accompanied this my disbelief. In other words, this this anxiety was a factor of my not believing. Somehow, my Mormon faith had been a sh- uh, bulwark against that anxiety. The uh, so uh, I can't remember exactly where I'm headed with this. No, but, but uh, a mission must have been a traumatic thing for you to be considering. Well, uh, not to consider. I uh, my mood was uh, such that I welcomed going and thought it would be all right. And I recognized I didn't have a testimony, but it didn't seem to matter. I was I felt okay about being committed to preaching and... Going uh, with it and, and having an eye of faith that, yeah. it would, that would resolve itself. Yeah, it'd be all right. And, uh, and but uh, very early in my mission, I mean, maybe three three weeks into the mission... In Denmark? In uh, Switzerland. Switzerland. Uh, French-speaking Switzerland. And later I was transferred to French-speaking Belgium. There was just one big French mission in those days. And I, uh, but I, uh, my companion and I were invited in by, uh, first of all, I, by two or three, within days of having been the mission, I was aware that the people of the world weren't exactly panning with eagerness to receive the, this uh, happy truth the Mormons had. Uh, and it seemed like to me, uh, unfortunately, that on the whole, they looked just as calm and happy and solid and decent as the Latter-day Saints I knew. And uh, finally, uh, after long hours of knocking on doors and not being admitted, uh, a, a man let us in. And he and his wife sat and listened to our lesson, and then they let us come back. And they compared in their Bible everything my companion, who could speak French, showed them. But after the end of the second meeting, they said, no, you don't need to come back anymore. We've taken a look at it, and what you've told us doesn't seem to us to, to square with the Bible. And so thanks. Well, for my companion, that was the end for those folks. They had heard the gospel and had rejected it. And it suddenly dawned on me that here's this God that sells his blessings at a high price. You've got to jolt yourself out of a, of a happy spiritual condition and a happy social condition and join with this bunch of people from Utah or you're not going to make it upstairs. And all of a sudden, my belief not only in Mormonism crumbled, but my whole belief in the Christian God because I realized I couldn't believe in a God who gives rewards and punishments. And I haven't believed since. That was 60 years ago. Well, nearly 55 years ago. In God or in a God that requires, that doles out rewards and punishments? Well, a personal God that doles out rewards and punishments. Okay, okay. The Christian God. So uh, that makes my my other this other business about a Christian by yearning you see even more relevant, which I get the title to of later. Your book. Yeah, a title yeah. of the book and of an essay and so on.
Well, I, I won't go on with the, the mission except to say it was, uh, I, I did try to come home at a certain period. Uh, uh, my mission president leaned on me not to. My mother was sending me money for my fare home on the, the ship. But she, of course, didn't want me to come home, and I realized at last nobody, nobody that I knew that meant anything with me, to me would be happy to see me home. So I stayed. And, uh, but incidentally, I came home from my mission uh, believing it had been a good experience, and, and in fact, I was glad I'd stayed. But, I came home from my mission determined that from then on my relationship to Mormonism was going to be totally on my own terms. That's why I married a Gentile wife in about a year so you after met getting the, home. You met Althea. She was at BYU. Right. A non-member at One BYU. One of a few people, but she'd had four years of college there and, uh, and had learned how to live comfortably with Mormons. What brought what brought a, a, a Gentile to Provo? She had a Mormon girlfriend down in Long Beach and uh, California. California, and uh, the Mormon girlfriend was going to go to BYU, and Althea's parents uh, were pretty poor, and BYU was cheap in those days, fifty bucks a month for uh, a quarter for tuition. So Althea went along, and besides, she was. <laughs> Her parents quarreled quite a bit, and she was she wanted to go anywhere that wasn't home, and she liked her roommates at BYU and the friends she can't come with uh, left after one quarter, and Althea <laughs> finished her four years there. And, and she, yeah, was, she was in her fourth year when I came home from my mission and met her. And I'm sure with the family that you had, the uh, the notion of marrying a Gentile wasn't maybe received well. Well, that, that was a difficult thing. Uh, my, in the, the summer of my first, I came home in May. Uh, my brother Lynn introduced me to Althea within a week or two of my being, coming home. And right then I decided I'm going to pursue this relationship. And I had, her, I had Althea come down and visit me. I, I had to work in Arizona for the summer for earn money to go to, back to school on. But... But uh, I had her come to Snowflake, and in August, when BYU was out, summer school was over, and, and the family then awakened to the fact that I was fraternizing with a, a Gentile girl. And, and uh, the next summer, when Althea and I were engaged, 1958, my mother worked all summer on schemes to get Althea baptized and so on and put the marriage off till she'd baptized and we could go to the temple. And so anyway, I broke her heart in marrying Althea, but I was adamant and I couldn't, couldn't alter. And I think the fact that I'm still happily married to Althea uh, these 49 plus years later, that uh, as far as our marriage was concerned, it, it was a, an excellent thing to do. Did you say 49 years? Uh, well, next, uh, 1958, 2008, be 50 years. Congratulations. Um, I have to ask this. I, I kind of meant to ask it earlier. 
But uh, and you did allude to this a tiny bit when you talked about your BYU your BYU years at first. But sexuality comes out quite a bit in your books, um, and uh, and it must have been that that was an important thought or consideration or concern of yours um, in your formative years. And you talk about being a monk, and I wonder if that was maybe a subtle reference. But is there anything you want to talk about your struggles? Um, with coming of age sexually in those formative years prior to marriage. And even in the backslider, I, I believe Frank marries a, a non-member yeah. and, and struggles even with, Gets with sex. without before marriage. And even during marriage, he struggles with That's uh, right. sex and the over. role of sex. So is there anything, and you could say no, but is there anything about sex and the role of that or sexual urges in your formative years that you feel like are important enough for you to make sure get addressed as someone's understanding how all these elements played into what you did later? Well, I, I come from a, a Mormon tradition that interpreted sex as suspect. Uh, I will point out that Christianity has interpreted s sex as suspect. Um, as you see in the, the Catholic priesthood and, and their monastic tradition uh, the my uh, I, uh, the family has a letter from Wilford Woodruff to my grandmother my mother's mother explaining uh, dealing with the question that my grandmother has obviously asked in a letter we don't have uh, whether it's alright to have sex married people to have sex for reasons other than procreation and it's really interesting to see Brother Woodruff dance around that business, admitting that, well, it'd be better off if we, if we could restrain ourselves. But he says, human nature being what it is, you can't. And indicating, well, if you go, you know, it's better to be married than to burn, etc. But at any rate, uh, the... And, Part of the pro problem with my mother's first marriage was she knew she didn't want to stay married to her husband. He smoked and he wouldn't take her to the temple. And and I don't think she even wanted to have sex with him, but she was in circumstances where it was really hard for her to, to turn him down. And she there's a letter extant in which she writes to her mother asking her mother to pray for her because she's done two or, th two or three times she's done things she shouldn't have done, which means is that she let her husband have sex with her. Well, uh, I don't just think it's an oddity of my mother and my grandmother. I think it's, it's Victorian Mormonism, and there's more of it out there than you think, including a niece of mine who had... 11 children and she and her husband made their mind up that if they they would not have sex unless they were willing for her to get pregnant well the and that, that's a woman my age so uh, it's out there and and uh, yeah I I have to deal with that I, I I felt guilty for just kissing a girl and the first time I ever put my hand inside a girl's bra, I, I suffered excruciatingly 
excruciating guilt over that for a long time. And as I said, uh, having got so far as to trying to fornicate with a girl in the front seat of a car and not being successful at it, thank goodness, still I considered myself a fornicator for the attempt. Well, I think a lot of people reading that would say, what a... What a wuss. That's not significant. I said, well, if you were not, if you knew it came of my background, it was big time significant. Uh, so, yeah, I had hang-ups about sex. Uh, it's okay. I, uh, I never did uh, uh, truly fornicate before marriage, and I've never committed adultery after. And, uh, and I don't mind saying I've had a... a an obliging wife, and that makes a big difference to a human being to do so. And before before that, I recommend masturbation on the part of men because I can't imagine the master of the universe cares a fig about whether human beings relieve their sexual tension in solitude. Seems like me to be the last thing God would pay any attention to. And your and your work actually discusses that. I say that. And did you experience maybe guilt or? Um... Uh, well, I went through a period uh, after I came back from my mission, but before I married, of having to deal with that. You know, is this uh, something I go on feeling guilty about, or is it something I just say, well, that's just the way it shakes out? <laughs> no pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> and so you inflicted this condition upon Frank Wyndham as well. Yeah. Uh, and that rich, that device where he has his. He rigs up some gloves to have his hands tied at night so he won't masturbate. That was going around in a letter reputed to have been written by an apostle. I don't know if it really was, but at any rate, there are a lot of Mormons who thought that was church policy. It's better to better for young men to tie their hands at night than it is to masturbate in their sleep. As far as I'm concerned, that's pernicious and evil doctrine. <laughs> that idea, and do you uh, um, do you do you see this actually as a serious this notion of sex sexuality as a serious issue that actually causes uh, traumatic issues or pain for people today or I do. throughout the history of Mormonism? I do. I think uh, I'll bet a dollar a lot of confessions of, on the part of missionaries in the MTC are over masturbation rather than what they've done with a girl, and I bet a lot of mission presidents get that kind of confession going. And, and you feel like that's damaging because why? Well, because it, it's so, it's damaging because it's so useless. Who, why, why does deity care? What business is it of my mission president or an apostle or my bishop? It's none. It's zero. Yeah. See? I've worked it out with God. He's okay. He's okay He's with it. He's a good It's just the bishop that might not be okay with it. <laughs> Sorry about that. <huh? laughs>